Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. We're off this week reporting on some amazing news stories, so we're bringing you some of our favorite podcast pieces from recent months in this special Rewind episode. Our first piece today is on musical therapy and how one therapist is helping people in Reno. After that, we have an interview with UNLV professor and fashion historian Deirdre Clemente on how COVID has changed what we wear and the future of fashion. At the end of the show, we have a piece me and photographer David Calvert did on a small radio station in rural Goldfield, Nevada, bringing people important information and entertainment in a place with limited cell service and internet access. Nothing else matters. You want to sing Nothing Else Matters? Yes. Sounds good. I love singing this song with you, Trey. All right, well, I am here with video producer Tim Leonard. And uh, Tim, you've been working on a video on music therapy, something that I don't really know that much about, actually, until you started reporting on it, that is. So to start off, I'm just kind of curious what a music therapist does. So a music therapist is a lot like a traditional therapist, right? They deal with the same kind of issues as like what you're imagining when you think of a therapist. They just use music as an additional tool. My name is Elizabeth Lenz, and I'm a music therapist with Notable Music Therapy Services here in Reno, Nevada. The goals are still very similar. So I was working on the other story, and it ended up falling through, but the person I was working with told me that she knows a music therapist that might be interested in talking about what her job was. And at first, I was thinking like sound healing or like somebody that just plays music for people. I didn't even know what music therapy was, so I was very skeptical. And so I went on a Zoom call with them, and they kind of described to me what the process is like, all the schooling that goes into it, and kind of the neurological responses that we have to music. So when I met Elizabeth, the music therapist I talked to in the video, and she told me she was working with a older adult who had a stroke and wasn't able to communicate anymore. But I'll give you an example of a woman who I see. She's 88 years old and she had a stroke a few years ago. Since the pandemic, we've done online sessions. And it's really cool because we get to do Zoom sessions with her and her three daughters. And two of the daughters live elsewhere, so they don't normally get to see her. Because of her stroke, she lost a lot of her speech skills. Her speech is very limited. She can sing because music is processed all over the brain. When a neural network is damaged by something like a stroke, you can re-strengthen that by creating new neural networks through music. The goal of music therapy is to have it transfer so that once you're not in the music situation, you still have those skills and you can still use them. You know, it doesn't always come out picture perfect. So she still struggles a lot with her speech, but within session, she's able to tell her daughters that she loves them. And that's something that we practice singing, I love you. When I heard that story, I was like, oh, I had this completely wrong, like what a music therapist was. And after that, I knew I wanted to do a full story about it. Yeah, it's definitely kind of not what I expected. I guess when I think of music therapy, my initial reaction is people get stressed out and you play music for them and they're less stressed. Because that's kind of how I interact with music, right? A lot of the time, you know, if I'm angry, I'm listening to some angry music. If I'm sad, I listen to sad music. You know, I gravitate towards music that kind of fits my mood, but that's not really what this is. It's more about the process of creating and playing music. Right. A majority of what a music therapist does is actually creating music with people. It's not playing music for them necessarily. It's 
tailoring music so that they can go through that creative process of writing a song or of playing an instrument. In school for music therapy, you have to take all these classes about neuroanatomy and how music and the brain interact um, and how music is processed all around the brain. So it's almost like little hacks that make learning skills easier through music. You have to have proficient skills on guitar and piano and voice, so you have to take all of that. You also have to take psychology courses, regular psychology and abnormal psychology, and be up to date on things that different researchers are finding within the field. We have these motor areas in our brains, and so when we have a steady rhythm, it, it kind of allows the brain to relax into that rhythm, and it's predictable, so you know when the next one is gonna come. Just priming, getting your body relaxed, and the predictability of it too allows for feelings of safety. Also, when you sing, you naturally breathe more deeply, which relaxes your brain. You're doing this fun thing, you're singing, but actually you're building coping skills and actually you're reducing your anxiety. By doing that kind of circumvent a lot of people's natural barriers towards the goals of therapy. So if you just start hammering somebody with questions or start diving into their past, they might put up walls. But if you ask them to sing a song, you might hear them able to process those things that initially they were averse to or they might be scared by. But by using music, they can deal with some of those emotions. And speaking of dealing with emotions, one thing that Elizabeth mentioned during your interview with her was, you know, holding that space for people to deal with their emotions and how she handles it herself. I had a lot of trouble over the pandemic, especially uh, just seeing things that I never thought I would see. And there was uh, a rise in teen attempts of suicide, seeing kids and teenagers in just really grim, dismal situations. It's difficult to hold that space openly and compassionately and for all of the emotions and be very present and then to let that go. I mean, I'm in personal therapy for myself. I have been for years. Um, in music therapy school, they encourage all of us to get personal therapy for ourselves. Forever trusting who we are What were some of the things that kind of surprised you about the story that you weren't expecting to learn? My favorite part about the story, and uh, didn't make it into the video, being a music therapist has really improved her relationship to music. So she grew up in a musical family. She's been playing violin since she was four years old. There's not a time in my life where I don't remember being surrounded by music. I... I think as a child, being immersed in classical music especially, I had a very easy childhood, very privileged and all that jazz. And music, classical music especially, helped me realize the depth of human emotion that is possible. And then also music, my relationship with music, when I was just playing violin, and I still play violin and I love it so much, but I've definitely gone through times where I had a lot of negative self-talk inside my own mind about playing. And because there's so much focus on perfectionism and being great all the time. And so you make any mistake and you beat yourself up in your head about it. So working through that has been a big just personal growth journey for me. She gets a ton of value out of meeting all of these people and working with them. 
it, it, you can give so much to other people, but it is also very selfish in a lot of ways because you spend so much time with yourself and you're focused on your sound and every, every little nuance about it. Going into music therapy has greatly improved my relationship with music. Music isn't about being perfect. It's not about playing Bach in a perfect Baroque style or anything like that. It's about, it's about connecting with people. It's about um, sharing yourself, expressing yourself, learning new things, um, getting to hear how other people express themselves because we're all so different. It's really cool for me how it's affected my relationship with violin because I just enjoy playing violin more now and I enjoy playing with others a lot more too. And I, I think my own you know, work in therapy and all that kind of stuff um, has helped a lot with the negative self-talk. So now I can just be present when I make music and enjoy it. Take my All right, Tim, well, thanks for talking with me today. And make sure to watch his video on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, or on our YouTube channel or any of our social media channels as well. That's right. Thanks, Joey. Gorgeous tray. Thank you, Elizabeth. Yeah. What do you feel like doing next? Deirdre Clementi is a cultural historian and the director of public history at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. She specializes in clothing and fashion. She joined me on the show this week to talk about fashion during the pandemic, how it's changed, and what it may look like moving forward. Just to start off, we wanted to know how COVID has really impacted and affected fashion trends. Well, I mean, what we wear in many ways has always, I, as a historian, I always struggle to use that word, but what we wear has always been tied to a representation of our socioeconomic identities, mm-hmm. right? So what we're doing right now, what sort of the current buzz in American fashion is, of course, a direct outgrowth of the cultural, social and cultural change that has gone down in the past two years of this pandemic. And I think that it's fundamentally changed a lot of people's approach to the role of top-down social rules in people's everyday lives. Fashion is such a statement, right? Like, I think it's such a part of people's identity a lot of the time. Has that, have you talked to people now? Because we haven't been going outside as much, right? We haven't been seeing other people as much. Are people less tied to like what they're wearing because they're not seeing everybody as as often? I think one of the most important things for us to acknowledge as we move forward culturally with the American wardrobe is to sort of understand what's happening right now with this personalization of dress as as an outgrowth of Really, the past 10 years, as often happens in history, this happened in World War II, it happened after World War I, things that we consider sort of these shifts in dress and shifts in fashion change aren't just out of nowhere. They've actually been sort of hanging in the wings, but social upheaval gives them the chance to sort of step center stage. 
So I think that this sort of rise of casual dress at the level that it is in American culture at the moment is really the, the natural sort of warp speed version of where we were going. So these, these changes towards casualization and this idea of, no, I'm not going to wear a button down collar shirt and khakis to work anymore. Like those kind of rules just have less, less weight amid cultural and really workplace changes where a lot of workplaces don't want to police that. I bet you your employer doesn't want to come and say, I'm sorry, only green beanies today, no yellow beanies are worn. The modern worker just doesn't live by those, oh, where's the dress code handbook anymore? I mean, it's laughable. Damn, it killed off a lot of those sort of vestiges of corporate control over its employees' public appearances in, in the right contexts. So you said like this has been a trend moving towards a casual fashion for a while since even pre-pandemic, but the pandemic kind of accelerated it. And that's where we're at now. Are you seeing accelerated fashion trends happening more? Well, that's, of course, been a the rise of American consumerism. I mean, that idea of things next, next, next has been a post-war consuming trend. I mean, so it's only going faster. Social media makes it faster. It'll be interesting to see if there's pushback on some of this in that a lot of other consuming experts would say that a lot of people are starting to consume less actually because they're having clothes that can fit multiple purposes. So you don't need a wardrobe for work, a wardrobe for your date, Diane, a wardrobe. There's just a lot, the versatility of American dress is actually sort of killing off a lot of sectors of you know, formerly strong sectors of the garment industry. When we're talking about like those sectors of the garment industry, I think one thing that I think of is fast fashion, right? Sure. H&M. And, and with online shopping, it became such a huge deal during the pandemic, right? People didn't want to go to stores. Is fast fashion seeing kind of this, this resurgence or is it, is it, are people caring about like the quality or where they're getting things as much now? I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, stores like H&M and Zara are struggling right now because there's faster fashion than them now. So fast fashion in, well, I, I think as long as people want to consume at the levels that they have pre-pandemic, that they'll thrive. But I definitely feel that there's a trend in younger consumers and middle, early middle-aged consumers to buy better quality stuff and buy less of it. So we were talking about leisure wear and how that's kind of like, that is like the trend right now, would you would say, right? Is leisure wear or, or, or casual wear? Well, I would say that athleisure is, I wouldn't call it a trend because when I use that word, it usually means it's something that's sort of going and coming and then will then recede. But I think that sort of the basic premises of, of, of athleisure will have fundamental aspect like impacts on the American in wardrobe. So yes, I would say that athleisure is the fundamental way of casual dress at the moment. Well, I, when I think of it, I think of like yoga pants and sweatshirts and sweats and, and beanies. <laughs> when I think of athleisure, it's athleisure is not sportswear. It is sportswear and casual wear with elements of more formal dress. For example, it's not just yoga pants. It would be more like yoga pants with a fake zipper, but doesn't have a zipper. You see what I mean? It's like the interesting thing about that leisure is it's like trying to be both. So nicer fabric and some of the detailings of a more classic garment, like a sports coat. So maybe it would have patch pockets, like a sort of like a more casual sports coat. So it, 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 it takes stylistic elements of more formal garments and puts them into stretchy fabrics that are super washable into, you know, cool color combinations. So that's really what I think athleisure is. 
denim. What is the future of denim? I feel like that's been such a staple of the American closet for so long. Well, this is a really big question that you stumbled onto. And a lot of analysts are looking at what's going to happen. The jean market hasn't been awesome. Just like it just it hasn't been a thriving market in the United States. It's still a flat, thriving global market. But I think what you'll see is a mixed denim fabrics are really going to sort of play right into that more super casual, yet you can have a little bit of an edge of formality in it with a darker jean with a lot of, you know, like a spandex or sort of a different kind of synthetics woven into the denim. If denim wants to thrive and live on, it has to have a way to become modern. And of course, people will be wearing the denim that they've owned in their wardrobes for a long time too. So I don't think denim's going anywhere, but I think we're going to see some new modern adaptations of it in a generation like my children who just simply refuse to wear pants that have zippers in them. That's like a whole thing. Another thing that I'm, I'm thinking of too, uh, that we haven't touched on yet is footwear. Are people ditching like their heels for, for sports shoes or, or fancy sneakers? I think some of the more formal elements of our wardrobe, like heels, are actually going to remain in the wardrobe as expressions of personal individuality. But I do think that the functional footwear, again, which has been like slowly defining the market for a long time, is now going to be the fundamental way that we wear shoes, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that people will keep all of their more formal footwear as occasion-specific things. One thing that I've, you know, you always hear is what's old is new again, fashion trends coming back. It seems like the 90s are kind of popular right now. We were talking about how denim needs to evolve a bit, but denim jackets seem very popular. Is that the trend you're seeing? The 90s fashion is kind of popular again. If the middle schoolers are any indication, and they usually are, then yes. Also masks, right? Huge shift in uh wearable things. It's a new thing that we did not wear in America before. Our masks, for me, I don't know. It seems like they're going to stick around for a while. I don't think like as much as people get angry about having to wear them, I think that they are an, a fashion statement. I, th- I went to a wedding recently and a girl had like an all pink dress and she had a matching pink mask. It looked great. Yeah, I think that's really amazing. I'm a big political t-shirt wearer. So I guess that the masks are like my new version of that. It's again, an, an expression of individuality and it's just, a, you can't smile at people anymore. So let your mask say something. Whatever you are, people have very strong opinions about their political party. Are statements on their clothing becoming more of a common thing? Well, I I definitely think that the rise of the novelty t-shirt in the past 20 years, whether it's rosé all day or namaste or whatever t-shirt it is, all of which, of course, I love, you know, or your home state those are, again, an expression of individuality and letting people know that's what clothing's all about, right? Is it's the most visual reaction. It's the quickest way to tell someone who you are. Mm-hmm. So if you feel that your issue is important enough to have the first thing everybody who sees you throughout the day see, then get a t-shirt that says what, what you want to say. Is there anything that's Nevada-centric that you've noticed that like is a trend here that maybe isn't anywhere else? I always love to like look for those little nuggets. I, I think that one of the things I admire most, I mean, I've been living here for over 10 years. I've been working at UNLV for 10 years. I One of the most important things about Nevada fashion I've noticed is the creative interpretation of sort of cowboy wear into 
everyday life, which I have a lot of respect for, like fundamental respect and have started to take up on my own. And I just different uses of denim. I saw a guy with a denim vest on the other day in Smith's and he was just like taking small parts of sort of Western wear and just a bit, like putting them, dropping them here or there in people's wardrobes and how people do that here is very cool. And I would definitely say that that's pretty unique, unique to Nevada. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Any, any other things you noticed, like how COVID changed fashion or just any trends that you're seeing or kind of what what the future is looking like for what people are wearing before we wrap up? Well, I think one of the most important things when you when you talk about not only sort of the impact of the pandemic on American fashion, but also looking forward with American fashion is the role of synthetic fibers in mm. our wardrobes. And I think that's going to be really interesting. I mean, this has been going down. There's been a, a legitimate you know, synthetic fibers really introduced in the 1950s, sort of at a mass commercial level by the early 1950s sort of just have slowly but surely taken over such huge parts of the textile world and how we dress and why we can go to H&M is because we have all these synthetic fibers. If that was all cotton, H&M wouldn't be that full, right? So I think one of the key things sort of looking forward into American fashion is what role will synthetic fibers play in the next form of the American wardrobe? And it's looking like they're just going to be the dominant force. So that'll be interesting to watch. And I'm grateful because I love a good snap on my yoga pants. That was Deirdre Clementi with UNLV. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, GQ, the Atlantic, Business Insider, and Harper's Bazaar. Radio Goldfield is a small community radio station located in, you guessed it, Goldfield, Nevada. The town at one point was the largest in Nevada, with over 20,000 people living there in the early 1900s during the gold rush. But after the gold dwindled and fires burned down most of the town, it ended up a small pit stop along US 95 between Reno and Las Vegas, with only about 300 residents. Community radio stations are important for small rural towns, which have limited cell service and broadband infrastructure. One of the most important ways to get information is from stations such as Radio Goldfield, which services not only Goldfield, but the surrounding towns of Beatty, Tonopah, and Hawthorne. But what the station lacks in size, it makes up for in personality. Carl Brownfield is the station's program director, and his journey to the station is full of twists and turns. Photographer David Calvert and I visited to gather footage and photos that were published on the site as part of a feature story about the station. I'll let Carl take it from here to talk a little bit more about what brought him to Goldfield, the station's story, and the story of the town that still thrives there. I grew up in Downey, California. I grew up Mormon, and I spent two years as a Mormon LDS missionary. Though I'm not an active Mormon today, I've never denounced. When I finished my two-year mission, the the draft was uh, imminent. In June of 67, I went to Vietnam on a troop ship, my first long boat ride. That was fun. Uh, So I got back and I had various jobs and raised four children and never had a clue that I would get into the movie theater business. I invested 40 grand in sound. Sound had always been an important part of my life. Uh, If I had sold the theaters, I went to Las Vegas because my brother lived there and I drove cab on the strip for 21 years and loved every day of it. I came out, I had a travel trailer and I came out to spend one winter and it turned into the rest of my life. So you just never know. 
But I, I met my wife in Vegas, and we'd been married a while, and we watched a Discover Nevada series. And we had just bought a small, lightweight uh, fifth wheel. I saw in the news he did a, a, a cast from here in Goldfield. Actually, they were at the Mozart Tavern, and uh, it was a bar restaurant at the time, and they were in there talking to local people, and they showed the hotel. Well, I've always loved the old Wild West, and I've always loved history. So we came up here. I'm a pretty outgoing guy. I don't sit around and not make friends. You know, as far as I'm concerned, everybody I haven't met is just a friend I haven't met. So I started talking to people and, and about the town, and I told them about following from Vegas and coming up. By 2001, uh, we were busily working on on building our retirement home here in Goldfield. If you listen to our station, you'll notice that we're almost all acoustic music. There's several reasons for that. One is, I play guitar. <laughs> I've been involved in I was involved in the Minnesota Bluegrass and Old Time Music Association. I've always loved roots music, that what's down home, what's, what's from American roots. Uh, I have been listening to the radio all my life, off and on, uh, trying to search for that station that really hit home. And uh, the closest thing I ever found was Prairie Home Companion. We're not emulating or trying to copy Prairie Home. But that would be the closest KGFN you could liken us to would be a constant prairie home. I learned a lot from this because what you do is you get locals involved. If you can get locals or locals kids involved, they'll listen to you every day. Not only do I pilot this place here, I'm the secretary of the Masonic Lodge and I'm, on, I'm the vice president of the school board, and I'm the uh, communications guy on the board for our county LEPSI, local emergency planning. Oh, and I'm on vice president of the Chamber of Commerce. We're going to apply for uh, broadcast licenses. Get this, for Dyer, Rump and for Lower Smoky Valley, or Smoky Valley, which has got Round Mountain Gold, Hadley, and all that. So that's where we would like to expand Radio Goldfield, too. Goldfield is a destination for people who really want to be creative. We have, the, for the good or for the bad, we have no building codes in Goldfield except commercial. And if somebody is in trouble or needs help, this whole town will come to your aid. You might be a jerk, and maybe the next week, you know, they're going to call you a jerk and not let you on their property. But in the meantime, we need every soul that we can get in this town. And there's a whole lot of love amongst the citizens of this town for each other. We're a little wary of... Uh, strangers that come into town. You never know who's going to knock on your door. We had another gal come in, knocked on the door. My wife and her girlfriend were doing a show in here. She comes, she says, I'm a traveling musician. I have a guitar in the car. Can I come in and play some music on the air? And they said, sure. So anyway, uh, she come in here and had her guitar. And my wife called me and she says, this gal's really good. Ella, Melody Guy. 
And I said, really? And I so I grabbed my guitar, put it in case I came over here. We sat out there and I listened to a couple of songs and I you know, figured out a few things to back her up. And uh, we came in and played some music on the air live. It was fun. You just never know. This is the main corridor though for Snowbirds. And where Radio Goldfield has really gained recognition and listenership is because people, probably 80% of the snowbirds that come from Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, and Alberta that go to Arizona for the winter, if they see our sign, a lot of them will turn us on and they'll check us out. We got a donation uh, a week ago of $250 left in our little mail slot with a note and it said, we really love your station and so do a whole bunch of people that live by us in Corvallis, Oregon. If you listen to us for two days, we'll be number one on your dial. And uh, that's the key. And people say, well, I don't know why I love it, but I do. We get all these great shows that come in, plus our own shows that we produce. Producing 13 shows at this point. My wife does three, but you can listen to us and we create no stress. There's nothing in our broadcast that will create stress. You know, what's misunderstood really is that there's a bunch of backward people live up here. They're not backward, they're just free thinking. People that, it takes a certain kind of person to live here and, and like it and love it. You have to be creative and you have to be self-sufficient. If you had said 10 years or 20 years ago, you're gonna be on school board. I would have laughed. I would have laughed, you're crazy. There ain't no way that I would do that. If you'd like to learn more about Radio Goldfield and the town, check out my story on our site, thenevadaindependent.com. My story is accompanied by a video I made and a beautiful photo gallery from David Calvert. And if you're interested in listening to the station, you can find it by searching for Radio Goldfield on radiogarden.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley, Michelle Rendells, and Riley Snyder. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. And you can donate to The Nevada Independent on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. We'll be back next week with more reporting from in and around the Silver State. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.